Programming Throwdown, episode 105, a chatbot with a brain with Peter Voss. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So, um, yeah, I think this is going to be an amazing episode. I think you know a lot of people are amazed when um, they, they work with chatbots. So either you call them on the phone and you get that automatic response or, um, you know, even just, you know, having a putting a search query into Google in a way is a very kind of short form chat. And so this idea of like this, this, this human computer interaction um, is something that's really taken off. I mean, so many people have Alexa in their home, right? And so, um, you know, I'm super excited about this area. And we have Peter Voss here, who's the founder and CEO of iGo.ai. Um, and we're going to just dive really deep into this, into this topic, how this actually works, um, cover, you know, a lot of different uh, sort of areas here. And, and so thank you so much for, for coming on the show, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. How are you uh, surviving with with COVID and everything else? Like, how are you dealing with the quarantine? Um, it's actually worked surprisingly well for our company. We, you know, we used to work in a very small office, crammed together, and do a lot of brainstorming. And now everybody's working remote, and I, I thought it would really be uh, very detrimental. And we somehow managed to to. Uh, adapt. So yeah, I've got an awesome team and so far so good. We still miss some of this close collaboration brainstorming and I think we're missing out on some of that. So mm -hmm. hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get back to that. Yeah. Have you tried any of these uh, whiteboarding, like collaborative whiteboarding apps? Um, we've tried some over, you know, sort of over the months, but nothing. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think we haven't quite figured out how to get the same dynamic as people sitting around the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had the same experience where we've tried a few of them. There's actually a physical one that Microsoft sells, um, or maybe it's Google. I don't remember. But there's but there's a physical board where you, you know you write and and as people write, it shows up. Yeah, hugely expensive. Yeah. Yeah, it's insanely expensive, and and uh, you know there's delay. Um, so some people who are listening to the show probably can't see this, but in this case, you know, I'm in my house. Patrick's on a spaceship. You can imagine the kind of delay that that's going to have. Uh, you know, so many light years. And but you know you feel it you know when you're working with your team and uh, you you write something or you see someone write something delayed it's kind of this uncanny valley where um, it almost would be better if it just had an artificial delay uh, it wasn't just kind of always following you a little bit a little bit behind. Anyway, it is what it is. So we'll you know have to kind of just live live with that. But um, yeah, yeah, yep. we're we're doing we're doing okay. So. Cool. So and so iGo.ai focuses on conversational assistance. And so does how does this work? Do you um, uh, is it is it is it kind of like a, a single assistant that you build that many people use or do you have custom you know, assistance for different you know, uh, consumers? Yeah. So our product is actually now in a sort of second major generation. We launched the first generation uh, actually in 2008, 12 years ago. And there we focused on automating call center calls intelligently. You know, everybody hates calling into a call center and having a robot, you know, press one for this or yep, you know, yep. doesn't understand you. So that's the market. We basically, these things are called IVRs, interactive voice response. And basically what we're offering in a company called Smart Action is an IVR with a brain. 
So it remembers what you said earlier in the conversation. It, you know, it has deeper parsing, deeper understanding, has some reasoning ability and so on. So they're, they're much better conversations. That was our first generation uh, um, focusing on automating call centers. Um, the second generation mm -hmm. with Igo AI, uh, we just launched commercially uh, last year. Here we're focusing actually on, uh, on chat uh, channels initially. Um, because there's huge demand, that's the biggest sort of uh, growth area in, in, in customer interaction. And um, we are focusing on enterprise uh, applications right now. So, um, you know, large companies that want to give customer hyper-personalized customer support, uh, but we're also um, targeting things like um, a, a personal assistant for somebody who wants to manage their diabetes, for example. Um, for mm -hmm. coaching, we're working with a company that, that does VR coaching, um, and they basically need an intelligence engine to, to simulate the conversation that you're having. So there are many different applications, but right now our focus is on enterprise, working with large enterprise companies. Um, getting into consumer market, we'd obviously love to have our product available to, to the consumer, but it's just very hard to break into that market. Uh, you know, it's very very expensive, very risky. So we choosing to first do, um, you know, commercial applications. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, so how I imagine this and tell me if I missed the mark here, but so, so you go on, um, let's say Amazon, actually we did this the other day where we had to return something to Amazon and, uh, we had a, it was a, a bit of a complicated return. And so they said, would you like to chat to, you know, customer service representative? And so, and so, you know, we did, and we had this, quick, uh, you know, chat within the Amazon website, and then they were able to sort of sort it out for us, right? And so is this is kind of the market where you say, you know, yeah. someone says they're going to chat with a person on, on a website, but it's actually this bot, and then at some point, maybe it hands off to a person if it needs to? That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it. And what basically, we, we're taking that whole experience to another level, uh, because um, the current chatbot technology just uh, has severe limitations for for doing things like that, and we, you know, we'll, I think we'll talk at length about what those are and why they are. Um, but yes, that's exactly the kind of applications uh, we have. And moreover, we we look for applications that are hyper personalized to the individual. Now, what I mean by that is. Uh, repeat where it's more likely that they actually repeat engagement so that you can also have build on the loyalty of the customer or it's like you know as i said diabetes management where you'd actually be using it every day but it could also be um you know your your bank or or a company that you i mean amazon would be a good example that you you may be interacting with on a regular basis and it gets to know you and it's hyper-personalized to you as an individual, not as a statistic of a demographic group, but it remembers what conversations you've, you've had uh, and uh, takes that into account. It con you know, uses that as context, what you said earlier, what you said last week, what, you know, what, what kind of interactions you've had before. And that can be omni-channel as well, that, that you know, our conversational AI can take into account converse, you know, other interactions you've had via email or you know, other channels as well. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, one thing that I was thinking about actually when we were having this this chat with this uh, either customer service representative or AI, we don't we don't know because we probably failed that Turing test. But um, you know, when we were having uh, this chat, one thing that I, I that went through my mind was how um, you know when I was let's say early in university, 
um, I had tons of time. Um, and so I wouldn't mind sort of like sort of kind of optimizing these kinds of things like, okay, let's figure out the best way to do this. Let's, um, uh, you know, we could do different things. We could try different things, you know, like send us one. And if it doesn't work, then you will send it back. You said, and now, you know, things are just so chaotic right now. There's just so many things going on. You know, we have kids, we have all these other people sort of in the house. And so, um, now it's like, you know, just send me all three things and we'll just pick the one that works. And so like time is much more important. And, uh, um, you know, and, and that's an example of, of where sort of the customer context really matters because different people have different sort of states of mind when they might be doing the same thing, such as returning a product and, and trying to get another one. Yeah, absolutely. Context is so important. So even, you know, even if you uh, talk to a human, they, I mean, they wouldn't remember what other conversations you've had. You know, they, they might look it up in their CRM, but normally there isn't time for them to, to do that. But with an uh, in, in intelligent assistant like, like we're providing, it's, it's as if you had a dedicated um, support person on the other side that actually remembers the last conversation you had. And a good example there is, you know, for example, telco companies where you might have problems with your cable or, or, or whatever. So you called yesterday and you had a problem and then, you know, suggested, well, try this, you know, try moving the router and put it in a different position or whatever. So, you know, next day you call in and then it can say, well, did that help, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and say, no, well, you know, you've, you've already, tri- I know you've already tried rebooting it. So we want to ask you to do that again, you know, and yeah. so that's the kind of, it's even better than with a human because, you know, I go or whatever chatbot with a brain that you have will remember, uh, the conversations you've, you've had and what you've done and what you've tried and what you've spoken about. And yeah, you know what equipment, you, what equipment you have, you know, the, whether you, whether it's been is on the latest version and you know it, it can do it can do tests automated tests it can say hey let me let me test the line and you know it all of that can happen smoothly and efficiently whereas i know we've been working with companies like that and usually these calls these service calls take half an hour take an hour with a human agent and it's just like super frustrating you know like yeah, reset, yeah. Even resetting your password at a bank you know it's like insane of what you have to hoops what hoops you have to jump through you know yeah 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 we had something recently where um yeah the the i mean the short story was yeah we we kept getting asked for different information and we were in the car and we were kind of in a hurry so we had some mixture of the information but not all of it and then that caused you know some fraud thing to get triggered which meant that then you know they shut down the whole account and then things got a hundred times worse it would have been much better to just know, you know, you could even through the phone, you could know that, I mean, we were calling through the app, uh, through the bank app. So the bank actually could know that we're in the car. They could look at the accelerometer on the phone and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't be asking for documents that this person just wouldn't have in their car right now. Right, you know? right. um, so let's dive into that from a technical standpoint. Um, you know, this is a really complicated area. This is one of the most interesting areas for me personally is this idea of knowledge representation right and so um you know what we've seen over the years are sort of two distinct approaches both kind of evolving separately in my opinion separately and people constantly trying to sort of harmonize them but i haven't seen anything and these two representations are 
know, the symbolic representation. So imagine, you know, expert systems like Open Psych, um, the uh, um, what was it called? The the knowledge graph at Google, um, DBpedia. So all of these sort of graphical structures for knowledge, um, and and you can use statistical methods to sort of generate these structures. But at the end of the day, what you're left with is is kind of this this sort of structure or database, right? And then on the other end, you have this sort of embedding idea. So if you look at you know GPT-3 from OpenAI, if you look at uh, you know BERT or any of these other models, you end up with just layers and layers and layers of embeddings. And so these embeddings are kind of projections into some latent space. Um, and so, you know, I think I think both of these, you know, are extremely powerful, right? I mean, we've seen um, you know, extraordinary things come out of language translation, for example, where you know they feed in a sequence of of words in one language, it goes into this huge soup of embeddings, and then a decoder emits words in, in the other language, and it works remarkably well, amazingly well. Um, but you know, to to the point you made earlier, it's very hard to go into that soup and say, what do you know? Like, it's very hard to extract from this embedding. Like, oh, this person, uh, you know, had an issue with their router earlier. And so it's sort of like once you go into that embedded space, it becomes this kind of black box, right? And so I, I noticed on the, you know, on, on iGo.ai, they talk a lot about, um, you know, deep learning and, and, and the challenges there. And, yeah, I totally, uh, you know, can level with that. I think that um, you end up with this system that's very expressive but not very interpretable, um, and so, what are your thoughts on that whole dynamic? Um, yeah, so there's a lot, quite a lot to unpack there. It, you know, it really depends on the application that you have, how useful, let me call them, statistical models are. Um, and you know, for sort of a, a simple stimulus response uh, type thing, like a search or FAQ or you know something like that. That can be very powerful if you have the right training data and, you know, it's tagged correctly and so on. So that can be, uh, you know, yeah, just very, it's, it's the right tool for that. Um, but there is, there's just, there are some really fundamental limitations of statistical methods, certainly the way they're employed right now. And one of the key ones I can highlight is that it cannot learn interactively in real time. You basically train the model at, at the factory, as it were, uh, and then you deploy it. But when you deploy it, it's read-only, and, and and you know, and that's just it's a death blow for for any intelligent conversation that you have. I mean, if you had a personal assistant, if you were talking to another human, and you said something, and the next sentence, there there'd be no recognition of what they've said, or it would be just be some garbled kind of thing. You know, I mean, let's take something that is trivial for a five-year-old child. If I say just five words, six words, you know, my sister's cat, Spock, is pregnant, you know, so a five-year-old child wouldn't immediately know, okay, Peter is speaking, I have a sister, um, a sister has a cat, the cat's name is Spock, you might think it's male from the name, and then you hear it's pregnant, I know it's female, you know, so that information is immediately available, uh, you know, to to a human uh, and to any intelligent uh, conversational AI. It should be should be as well. So the next, uh, you know, the next sentence might be, "She's really big." Okay, well, she the cat's big because she's pregnant, you know. Or you might ask, "When will the kittens arrive?" 
you know, and, and that sort of thing is just impossible. And, uh, and it's trivial. I mean, it's trivial from, from a human point of view, what you expect in a conversation to remember what uh, to remember and not statistically, but to actually integrate what you hear to immediately integrate into your knowledge base, knowledge graph, that information. And with statistical systems, A, they cannot even learn, uh, certainly the, the, the bulk of the ones that are out there, they simply cannot learn, uh, do one-shot learning, interactive learning, um, you know, in real time. So you're already, you're dead in the water, basically, you know, from, mm -hmm. from, from that. But even if they could, uh, they would need a reasoning engine as well to say, okay, where does that knowledge that I've just heard actually fit into my knowledge graph? Right. And, right. and of course, and being a black box, I mean, it, it's like impossible to know how you would even, you know, where you would put that into in, in your in your network. Uh, it's like an impossible task to, yep. to do that. Yep. So, so it's really a complete dead end for having intelligent conversations. You really do need... Um, and, and a knowledge graph that is not opaque and that can you have a reasoning engine that you can have one shot learning. And I mean, we see the same limitations in uh, in image learning, even not that it's not an area we're focusing on now. But, you know, again, uh, a, a child uh, can learn a giraffe by seeing one picture of a giraffe. Uh, and it will be able to recognize toy giraffes, you know, pink giraffes and, you know, baby giraffes and, and, and so on. No problem with one one picture. You know, with deep learning, you need, you know, hundreds or thousands of examples. And, and even then it can easily be, be fooled. So there's something, something just fundamentally wrong with uh, or limiting using big data statistical uh, approaches that don't have, you know, one shot learning that don't have reasoning um, involved. Yeah, it makes no. sense. Just if I could interject for a moment, sure, just sure. explain to the audience what one-shot learning is. It's it's this idea where, um, you know, imagine sort of a competition where you can bring, you know, any machine learning model you want, and you could have done anything to this model. You could have trained it on every image in Google. You could do whatever you want, but the catch is, when when you go to this competition, they're going to show you, let's say, five pictures of animals and tell you what those animals are. And they're all going to be different, say giraffe, cat, mouse, dog, right? Um, and then, and then that's it. So you're going to have to disambiguate, you know, a ton of giraffes, cats, mice, and and dogs from each other just from seeing one example. And so I, I don't know too much about this area either. I'm not a computer vision person, but I did see some work from Fei Fei Li at Stanford on on this, you know, one shot or few shot learning. And I think what they do is is you know, as I suggested earlier, they train this giant model that tries to understand sort of the, I guess, the core essence and structure of of, of uh, everything that could be seen in the universe. I mean, I, I don't really, it's hard to wrap my head around that, but, um, but you know, they take this sort of soup approach, right? And, and again, I think it might work in terms of, you might, it might, it might, the one-shot learning for, for image might be doable, but then again, there's zero interpretability. Right. Yeah. And even you get zero shot learning, which basically means you figure things out, you learn new things just by thinking about it, basically by cognitive yeah. processes, you know, like sort of essentially inference. You you have a number of pieces of information and then from that you synthesize them and you actually come up with some new 
piece of uh, piece of information. And that's also related to uh, automatic concept formation, being able to you know see a few examples of of something you know I've never seen a trike before or something you know, and then you see something with three wheels and you have just you know a very few examples and you can form this new concept. You may have seen bicycles before and cars and you know whatever. Um, and you can form that concept very quickly. Um, somebody could even explain it to you that you've never seen one before. You know, you've never seen a trike before. Somebody says, "Yeah, it's something like uh, like a, a bicycle or motorcycle, but it has you know two wheels at the back or at the front or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be." So yeah. Uh, now, of course, the other the other side of of things, uh, and actually, in, interestingly, uh, DARPA a few years ago started giving some presentations that they talk about the third wave of AI. So that basically there are three waves of AI. And we find that quite a useful model. And the first wave of AI is what people call good old fashioned AI, which is basically all the stuff that was done for decades in AI that would include, you know, Deep Blue uh, basically be, being the world champion chess, you know, chess uh, game. It's basically, you know, centered around expert system, formal logic, uh, and, and, and things of that uh, nature. And, you know, a lot of AI was basically done that way, narrow AI. And that's the first wave. And the second wave hit us like a tsunami about eight, nine years ago when people finally figured out how they could use neural networks in a you know very, very uh, impressive way, um, partially down to just the massive amounts of data that that uh, large companies had accumulated that you know they that they never had before and the massive amount of computing power so you know two of the ingredients that were missing before is is having th that massive amount of, of data and, and computing power and then a few tweaks to the algorithms uh, and that really is what what brought us the revolution of uh, deep learning uh, you know the spe specialized field of machine learning yeah, and yeah. that's been a you know a real revolution, and that is the second wave of of AI according to DARPA. But the third wave is basically what we would call cognitive architectures or, or cognitive. I, I can't call call it cognitive computing because IBM stole that term and messed it up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but you know, it's basically having cognition. It's being able to learn and reason, which interestingly enough is sort of full circle going back to the original ideal of AI when when the term was coined 60 odd years ago that's what people were trying to build is thinking machines machines that can think and learn and reason the way humans do and that's sort of the the, the, the third wave of AI that you know DARPA identify these requirements that you can basically um, yeah learn interactively use context you know dynamic context as it changes and, and learn and so reason interactively. Yeah, I think one thing would be really useful is is explaining the difference between you know what you've just described and 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 just online learning, right? So you could do you could have a deep learning system that is you know at serving time it's batching serving requests up into mini batches and it's there's some loss there and so the model is updating in real time, but it sounds like that's not uh, you know that's 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 not sufficient to cover the kind of adaptability you're talking about. No, I mean, the model updating in, in real time, I mean, it's really you're building a new model. I don't, you know, there's obviously, you know, whatever I say, whenever you talk about limitations of machine learning, deep learning, uh, there are obviously examples where people are 
working on overcoming those limits. So, you know, there's a paper here and an experimental system there and so on. So, you know, you can't say it can't be done. Yes, there's probably some one-shot learning, uh, but there really isn't truly incremental real-time learning. I don't know of any any system that could do that because, you know, you already, you already called it as batching up. So you're already yeah, putting things right. into your into bucket. It becomes a statistical soup, uh, you know. So yeah. you know, my sister's cat Spock mm -hmm. isn't is going to get lost there, you know. Uh, yeah, in, that's right. In, in in that training model, and and it has to happen uh, not just in batches, but in real time. I mean, just the conversation we're having now, or any conversation you you have, you know, we we may not remember every everything that the other person said, but. Generally, we, you know, the conversation has a tra trajectory based on what was said, you know, what we think, what the objective is, and and so on. And and you, so you really, the model needs to be updated instantaneously with everything that that you hear. And if you can't make sense of it, so you know, if you mm -hmm. let's let's say my sister's cat Spock is pregnant, and the person, the child, didn't know what pregnant was, you know, the the, the child might stop and say, what is that? Yeah, because it couldn't, right. it couldn't integrate that, you know. So we have an example on our on our website, for example, where you know we 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 talk to we have our own sort of version of, of Alexa, uh, basically the brain behind it, and you know we we say put guac on my my shopping list, you know, and um, then then Igo says, well, what is guac? I don't know what guac is, you know. Oh, you know, guac is the same as guacamole. So it's all the system needs to be smart enough to to know what it doesn't know. That it, and and to then be able to, you know, automatically disambiguate and not some hard coded thing when you say, you know, call Bob and it says, do you mean Bob this, Bob that from your, you know, from your list because some somebody hard coded it, but it needs to be an inherent cognitive capability that when the system has gets input, and it doesn't know how to interpret that, it basically doesn't understand it or there's an ambiguity, it needs to deal with it there and then. You know, like we have to in a conversation, if, uh, if you have an important conversation, I mean, sometimes we'll gloss over it and we don't understand what the person said. Well, OK, fine, <laughs> we'll move on. <laughs> but yeah, if, right. if, if you really wanted to, you know, have a useful conversation, you better understand what the, the person actually says and what they mean. And if it's ambiguous or you don't understand the term, you really need to sort that out there and then. So the, the in that sense, a good old fashioned uh, approach of um, you know, having a knowledge graph, an ontology that gets updated, having a reasoning engine, sort of cognitive architectures uh, are in that sense the right approach. But of course, we also know the limitations of good old fashioned AI of expert systems. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really why we need a third wave. It's the, 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 the brittleness uh, primarily of, of formal logic that that's really the killer there. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's 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 a lot to unpack there. I think, um, um, yeah, actually, well, let's let's kind of work backwards. So the the last thing you said, um, the brittleness. I think that uh, yeah, that seems to be one of the big issues. Is is you know with the statistical models, um, what you get is sort of this integration over millions of different experiences or millions of different documents. So if you imagine. Uh, so just some context, the way Google image search at least used to work is is um, they would look at images and they would look at words on the same web page and they would say these things are weakly connected. 
And if you have enough web pages, um, you know, that weak connection can get stronger and stronger. It's, it's, and so, you know, you might have a dog on a page about cats um, um, or, or just some random page, a page about astronauts or something. But chances are you have a lot more dogs on, on pages where you have the word dog and the word canine and, uh, and, and things like that. Um, and so versus, you know, in the expert systems, at least the, you know, the first wave, let's say, expert systems, um, they were brittle in the sense that they, they couldn't, at least, you know, my opinion, they, they couldn't uh, handle mixtures very well because a combination of, um, you know, it causes combinatoric explosion in what in the different possibilities. And also because there is a lot of sort of human in the loop. Um, you know, I think for OpenPsych, a lot of that is written by people. Um, I know some DBpedia and some of these other ones have been kind of scraped off off the Internet and. Um, um, but, but you know, there's a lot of hand engineering there. And so how do you think they're going to sort of, we're going to sort of overcome that and, and maybe sort of, I guess, take the best of these sort of symbolic systems that have been traditionally curated by hand and, uh, I like WordNet comes to mind, right? And, and some of these statistical methods where you're using a lot of electricity, but you're not using a lot of, of, of human effort, right? Right. <clears throat> right. Um, so the i mean i i believe the answer lies in what DARPA calls the third wave you know um, and one way to describe it is as a cognitive architecture so you basically start off by asking yourself what is intelligence what does intelligence entail and you know you can kind of make a, a practical laundry list of things and you know we've already spoken about um uh, the, some of the key ones is to be able to learn interactively to be able to understand deeply understand and know when you're not understanding stuff uh, and to be able to reason about things so those are you know maybe three key things and your architecture needs to inherently be designed to be able to cope with that now some of the the cognitive architectures have been around for a few decades and they they haven't really worked that well uh, but primarily the, the reason they haven't worked uh, well and i just want to interject here you know, uh, neural nets also for decades, people worked on it and you could say, well, neural nets don't really work, you know, yep, they, don't, yep. they don't work until they do, you know, yeah, exactly. until, until somebody figures out <clears throat> how to get them to work. And I, I believe that's sort of the where we are with cognitive architectures. You know, people have tried to get them to work and they haven't worked for reasons which I believe we understand uh, quite well. Um, so, uh, you know, one, one of the things is they are based on formal logic. Most of them are based or pretty much all of them are based on formal logic and formal logic, uh, like the problem that psych had, uh, can't handle contradictory information. So, uh, you know, what psych ended up doing, having micro domains where within the micro domain, it had to be consistent, but the, the domains themselves didn't necessarily have to be consistent. That's sort of roughly how they, they dealt with that. But that's that's not nearly fine grained enough. You know, you you can um, you know you can you can read that uh, Google bought DeepMind for you know 400 million and and another article Google bought DeepMind for 600 million. You know, and you say well, and your system really just needs to be able to take them in stride as we can. You know, okay, well there's something not resolved until you find out the one was a newspaper report from the UK and the other one from the US. So the one was in pounds and the other one was in dollars. Ah. You know. Yeah, um, you know, but you can in the meantime, you need to basically capture that knowledge and a, for, a formal logic system would just fall apart. You know, if 
if it if it had this contradictory information. You have fuzzy information. You know, um, you know, s s some guy is a short ba uh, basketball player. You know, hey, the poor guy's only six five or something. You know, yeah, right. So he's he's a short person. You know. So uh, being able to contextualize what, you know, the meaning of things, uh, uh, that those kind of things. So formal logic hasn't been able to deal with that. So um, the, the answer lies in, in basically having a knowledge representation and a logic engine, a reasoning engine that can inherently deal with contradictions, with fuzziness uh, in, in, an, in an effective way. Um, so I think that that's really the the way to to go. Now the, the question you asked about um, not having a human in the loop to to get this uh, get the knowledge, this is really really tricky. Um, we as humans just pick up such an enormous amount of common sense knowledge. You know, even a two year old has it about how the world works, um, and to get that knowledge uh, represented properly. Uh, in, in an AI is, is really, really hard. And especially if you don't have embodiment, you know, if, if, it, mm -hmm. if, it, if it's not actually a robot that crawls around or walks around in the real world and, and learns. But do, that, you, do you feel like it's genetic? Do you think that, that a lot of this information is, is multi-generational and it's, it's encoded in that way? Or do you think that we are able to really kind of bootstrap? Because, yeah, the two-year-old thing blows my mind, or even just a baby is able to is able to have so much common sense reasoning. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have any data, but just like intuitively, it feels like there's got to be some kind of genetic stamp there. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there is, and that's, uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of a very difficult thing to unpack, basically nature versus nurture, and, and um, so, so we, we clearly not a blank slate. You know, babies are not a blank slate. That, that's, that's for sure. Um, but is there, you know, are we born with knowledge? Uh, I don't think there's evidence that we are born with knowledge per se. But again, it's very tricky. You know, what? Mm -hmm. where do you draw the line of what you call knowledge? I mean, I mean uh, you know, a, a baby knows where it's going to get fed, you know, or what it needs to do to get get milk. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, it has uh, those instincts, you know, that, that are obviously in, in, in DNA as they are for, for animals. Um, but... I think the the biggest part is so yes there are some built-in instincts that you know allow us to to survive and boots kind of bootstrap ourselves, um, but I think the bigger thing is um, sort of built-in feature extraction and I think the, the the very good example a very obvious example there is um, you know in our visual system that we basically clearly have feature extraction for you know lines for vertical horizontal lines if we didn't have that we'd have a much, much harder time being able to, you know, recognize objects and to basically to get a, a visual system to, to be effective. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on what all the feature extractors are, uh, but clearly there is, you know, there, yep, there are yep. hard-coded feature, feature extraction uh, that, that, that helps to get us going. So on, on a, from an AI point of view, to get back to that, um, it, it'll be a combination of, Having to kind of hard code, you know, uh, preload the system with enough information to bootstrap itself, um, and you know that's kind of one of the things we're doing in 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 our company. I've been working on the project now for more than 20 years, and you know the approach we use um, we call artificial general intelligence as opposed to narrow AI, 
uh, I actually coined the term um, AGI together with two other people in mm -hmm. 2001 um, to, to make that distinction that narrow AI is, is really not what we're after. You know, narrow AI, you take the intelligence that the human has. You, we were talking about human in the loop. You take the intelligence that the human has and you're turning that into code or you take the intelligence, the insights that the human has to help you build a model that you can then deploy. But it's really yeah. the human intelligence that's, that's being turned into code or, or, or model. The intelligence doesn't reside in the code or in the in the model to, you know, at least not to a significant extent. So artificial general intelligence is all about building systems that can that can learn more and more by themselves so that but you need a certain level of bootstrapping that basically the system can hit the books, as it were, you know, and hit yeah. Wikipedia and actually have enough of, of, a, of background understanding to make sense of what it's actually reading, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, you know, in the in the deep reinforcement learning or let's say reinforcement learning community, you know, there's there's world building models, there's there's sim to real. Right. So in this case, there's examples where you say, um, you know, given the current state of, let's say, my robot, um, I'm going to predict if I take this action, what the next state's going to look like. And so I'm going to build this this state to state function. Right. Um, and then there's even embed to control where I'm going to say, OK, the state is kind of difficult to output because maybe it's some sparse state. Maybe it's a graph or something like that. I'm going to embed this state in this latent space. And in this latent space, I can have simulators. I can hallucinate in this latent space all these all these alternatives, right? Um, and so people are trying to do that, uh, you know, that that sort of sim to real idea. But again, it's it's this soup, right? I mean, what you're left with is this really odd, uh, you know, embedding of let's say Pac-Man and and the Pac-Man universe, and 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 it's completely uninterpretable. Um, and it's 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 whether it adapts or not is is unknown. I mean, it's it you, you can't know that in advance, um, and you can't extract uh, you know a knowledge graph or anything meaningful from it. At least not 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 uh, directly, right? Um, and so yeah, I, I guess you know how does the cognitive architecture allow you to sort of build upon allow allow it to be sort of agglometric and continue to build on itself, right? You know, without so falling back to this embedding soup thing. Right, right. So um, the the sort of the key um, one of one of the insights uh, that I got from philosophy, epistemology, theory of knowledge, um, that is really crucial in understanding, um, trying to figure out how to to build the, the systems, is the importance of concepts, uh, and and that is basically how your knowledge is represented. So. Um, Deep learning, machine learning systems basically optimize on uh, whatever features they can use, minimal features they can use to to categorize something. So, you know, if orange pixels are the thing to categorize it, uh, then so be it. But it may be that all your examples were orange things, you know, and when you come yeah. across the green There's thing, the famous uh, army tank example, right? Yeah, the army right. built a model for this uh, to detect Russian versus U.S. tanks. When they took pictures of the Russian tanks, it was at night, and so the model ended up being a nighttime predictor instead of a Russian tank. Predictor. Exactly. That 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 that's right. Whereas uh, humans, we we extract what are the essential features um, 
in a contextual basis in the, you know what we want to form the concept for and yes in your example of the tank uh, yes the fact that it's day or night is totally irrelevant so therefore that's not a feature that would that we would encode uh, for 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 a tank and we know that because of the background information that we have and the purpose that you know, why you know this is all subconscious of course we know what this concept is supposed to be for uh, used for and and that can adapt that can change over time you know you may as a child uh, the concept of a, a a dog or a cat may be you know I had something to play with and you know can bite you or whatever you know the case may be but then you become a vet and suddenly the concept changes very very dramatically you know in terms of well what kind of cat is it you know what uh, what does it look like and can you detect the particular ailment or, or whatever so the concepts themselves can also change and adapt to the use that you want to put the concept to but the concepts themselves need to represent the 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 key features the essential features uh, for the purpose that you're trying to put it to and but in addition to it you also embedded in that you have the concrete examples so you can fall back on the concrete examples you know when you uh, when when for example that and you know we don't have photographic memory uh, and but certain things we do remember well. So, you know, if that first picture of a giraffe really made a big impact on, on a child, then it can probably recall that, that picture. It'll still have the example. And yet at the same time, it'll have a, an, an, a representation of a giraffe that has extracted the essential features, you know, the long neck, the long legs. Um, that's the essential feature that makes it obviously different from other animals. You know, it's an animal, you know, what is different, one elephant with a big trunk and big ears, you know, those are really yeah, that, the, the key features. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the way you figure out the way you it, it's the frame problem, right? So you look at a giraffe and there's a million things you could say about this giraffe. But until you look at a bunch of other animals, it's hard to know what separates this giraffe from the other animals. Like if you're in the savannah, you might start by saying, oh, well, giraffes are yellow, but then you find that lions are more or less yellow, or I guess brown, yeah. and tigers are, or, or not tigers, lionesses are brown, maybe warthogs are brown. And so, okay, maybe you say, okay, color is maybe not the defining characteristic of the giraffe, right? Um, and, and so how I imagine this, and I'm definitely not an expert in the, in the cognitive architecture, although I, I want to be after this, after hearing the talk so far, it sounds really exciting, but, but uh, it sounds like you have this, sort of this this like quantum almost like quantum uh, superposition of all of these things that could be interesting and over time you're having to sort of refine that and and uh, continue to update that yeah exactly I, I I wouldn't put it anywhere as mysterious as you know quantum phenomena <laughs> okay, yeah right <laughs> but uh, absolutely you uh, you you can basically as you see also, one of the other problems with uh, deep learning statistical systems is they throw away the examples. The instances yep, yep. are not encoded. So whereas in a cognitive architecture, it's cheap and easy, uh, you know, with memory uh, to actually you have a photographic memory and remember the original sentence that you heard the utterance in or the sentences that you heard. So you have the original instance or, or with images, you have the original image. So you could then retrospectively refine or redefine 
what the essential features are. You know, you might, as you say, the giraffe might be the first yellow animal you see, and so you think maybe yellow is is like really key. Um, but you know, as you see other animals, you don't know that yellow is is not a distinguishing feature. And then you see toy animals, which could be purple or you know, purple unicorns or whatever, pink unicorns, right. uh, yeah. pink elephants. You say, well, yeah, actually, you have that subconcept of, or, or, or yeah, sub. Anyway, you have that over overlapping concept of of toys, which you know automatically have some different kind of weird features that can modify the other features. You know, they can be a completely different size. They're much smaller. They they soft. They don't bite you, and they can be a weird color. You know, mm-hmm. but yeah, you can still sense. tell you can still tell a giraffe from a uh, from a from an elephant, a toy elephant. You know, by just extracting. Uh, using different features in within that context. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so one thing. So, so you know, a lot of these systems you're building, um, you have to have conversations or or are are designed to have conversations with real people. And so humans have set up kind of our own vocabulary, our own sort of common sense reasoning, and that might not be optimal or even close to it. But it's sort of it. It is what it is. If you want to talk to a human, you're going to have to use the the you know sort of common sense atoms that a human would use, right? And so, how do you sort of reconcile that? I imagine if you if you really started from scratch, saying we're going to build this kind of uh, knowledge graph, mm-hmm. then it's going to say, oh, you know, giraffes have you know a bend in their ear, and other animals don't. But it, but no person would ever think about a giraffe in that way, right? How do you how do you deal with that disconnect? Right, right. It's a very interesting uh, question because when I started on the project, uh, initially we were in pure R and D mode. We basically took the ideas that I'd come up with of cognitive architecture and built various prototypes. So we had a, a virtual mouse living in a virtual environment and learning. You know, it had you know virtual ears and nose and whiskers and so mm-hmm. on, and to basically to learn in the environment. And we then had different prototypes with different animals, dog, and then we had child, and we tried that. And uh, and then we, we, we decided we would focus on um, natural language, you know, but at, at, at adult level, basically. And so we spent several years teaching the system a whole lot of different things uh, that we thought it should know, the kind of background knowledge that it should, should know. Um, but then when when we commercialize, when you try to now use the system in a real life situation that's that, you know, is going to do a job, a useful job, uh, you actually, in a way, have to dumb down the system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, but it, it's actually not that that different from you might have uh, you might be offshoring your call center operations, you know, and you don't want the, the, the person in wherever they are in India or Philippines or whatever say, hey, I know how to sell this product much better than my, my boss told me to do. And, you know, I'll go off script and just do that. No, no. You want the person to stay on script. You know, yeah, that's yeah. what the company has learned. So we need to basically constrain Igo uh, to stay on script, as, as it were, and to say things that people would expect and to listen for things that we would expect people to say at that time and and not try and learn new, new things, you know, and form new concepts. So in that sense, you're kind of dumbing the system down uh, for that. So the, the kind of research path to give it true open intelligence uh, and the commercial uh, practicalities, you know, do tend to diverge, and that's one of the challenges uh, 
I, I've had uh, since commercializing it uh, is to make sure we can still continue cranking up the IQ and make the system more and more intelligent, but without without it going off script, so to speak, you know, without it trying to be too clever and obviously not not clever enough. So that that's kind of one of the challenges, and I, I actually, actually call it the AGI trap, that to build a commercial system, it's almost always easier to hard code things and to do them in a narrow yep, AI way yep. uh, than to try and do them in a sort of really cognitive uh, architecture way. And so we, we need to, to strike that balance. So yeah, you, 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 you pointed on a, a very important issue there that general intelligence at a, at a baby level uh, is, is not that useful. Yeah, right. And, and you know, I think there's that actually you could extrapolate that to a lot of different domains. And, and look at robotics, for example, you know, a robot, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people are so worried about robots taking over jobs, but it's, it's not just that the robot has to be able to do the job, but it has to be able to be more efficient than a person. I mean, if, if you have a robot, but it's going to require, uh, you know, I don't know, $20 an hour worth of, you know, maintenance and maybe right. it fails every now and then. And well, then, then, and if, if it's doing a job that you could, you could have someone do for $15 an hour, then that's no good. Right. Um, and so I think you can find almost any domain where what you said is true. I mean, even if you look at, uh, uh, video games, so, so video game AI, um, you could spend a ton of time, uh, you know, I mean, my PhD was on playing, on playing various games and, and you could spend a ton of time making a really complicated uh, video game opponent. Um, but at the end of the day, the goal is to, of a game is to be fun and to sort of keep people in the right. zone. Right, and so it's right. much easier to do that by having a knob. It's like uh, if the person's doing too well, then you just crank up the knob and there's just more of the same dumb enemies show up next time, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, the way our, our the way we're thinking about it is to, um, our goal is to get closer and closer to human level capabilities because I believe it's going to be enormously beneficial to to uh, to humanity to have that. Um, and we're sort of bootstrapping it through kind of a skeleton where the system, we, we hard code, well, we're not hard code, we don't code it, but we teach the system uh, yep. sort of rough common sense knowledge in an ontology. But we know that knowledge is not the way it should be represented, but it's kind of just to help it bootstrap. So think of it as like a scaffolding that the system should then build its real knowledge around the scaffolding and eventually the scaffolding itself just dissolves because it now has, uh, it's acquired the knowledge in a way that it really should have acquired it in the first place. You know, So that's kind of how we we see the bootstrapping process to higher and higher levels of intelligence, but it's uh, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, you see this in the real world, uh, I mean, in, in, in with real human beings, and you see this in uh, industry settings as well, where, uh, you know, in, in the real world, you don't let your child put his hand on the stove, right? Like, you just you don't you don't let them learn that the hard way, right? Or stick a fork in a socket or something. Right. Um, so, so, so what that means is that they're not going to fully understand uh, what it means to sort of put your hand on the stove until they're older and they understand heat and what heat could do to things and, and, and so on and so forth. But but the alternative is someone gets seriously hurt. So you kind of have to sort of bias someone's knowledge, right? Um, and what, what you see in, um, 
um, in industry sort of decision-making systems is something similar where, like for example, if you were to build a system to decide how many ads to show on a, on a Google landing page, right? Um, it might want to try to fill the whole page full of ads, right? Because that, that could be interesting, um, but that would kind of hurt your brand, right? And so you kind of have to start with, um, you know, something that's very focused, very guided, and then allow kind of a little bit of creativity. And then, as you said, eventually, you know, as the system starts to learn and reason, especially starts to reason counterfactually and starts to be able to understand, oh, if I filled the page full of ads, no one would come back, right? If it can reason that from limited set of experiences, then you can sort of, you know, take the training wheels off. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Those, those guardrails need to be there. But it, it's having an architecture, having an approach that inherently allows you to increase the, the level of intelligence and to, you know, that has the features that are needed for intelligence. Yeah. So one last sort of technical question and we should definitely jump into IGO as, as, a, as a company, as a product and as a, as a place to work. Um, so, you know, how do you sort of it sounds like the cognitive architecture is it's an evolution, but it's also kind of a unification of the past, right? You have these knowledge graphs, these these sort of symbolic systems. You have the sort of, uh, you know, primordial embedding soups. And this is sort of, you know, taking kind of the best of all of that, where you're using statistics and reasoning and, 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 and things that, that you've observed to sort of have this living knowledge graph. And then are you, the part that I wasn't totally clear about yet is, are you also then using uh, the expert systems approach, like using search and IR methods on that graph that you're that you're updating in real time? Is is it is that part of it? Yeah, I mean, the the from a practical point of view, and there could be, you know, other people may may have a, a sort of um, um, what what should I call it? Uh, a, a cleaner theoretical approach than we have. You know, I am. I'm as much a businessman as I am a, a, a scientist or researcher, and so to me, I'm, I look at it as an engineering thing: is how how do we, what's the best way of getting it done? You know, what's the best piece of technology or algorithm or whatever I can use to get a particular component to to operate uh, efficiently? Um, now, if, if you took a theoretically cleaner approach, you might you might say, well, no, we can't use a can't use a brute force of approach, you know, because the brain doesn't do it or it shouldn't really be using it or because ultimately not going to be scalable or whatever. So I'm less concerned about uh, that. And I'll, you know, we'll use, we'll use search for some of our algorithms. So we'll use whatever tricks, tricks in the book. This is hard enough. We don't yeah, want to say yeah. that because, you know, this is not theoretically as clean as you might like, like to have it. Uh, we've got to get it to work. Um, so, yeah, so we'll use we'll use whatever we need, but the, the 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 core foundation that we found is is really having a, a knowledge graph and having the right knowledge representation, knowledge representation that has the flexibility to deal with contradictions and with fuzziness, with lim, you know, and and um, and context and and so on, and that knowledge graph has to be super high performance. Uh, that's uh, just I'll talk a little bit about why cognitive architectures haven't worked up to now. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I, I can mention three reasons uh, for it. One of them is the brittleness of good old-fashioned AI of, of you know, formal formal logic. Most of them tried to get away with formal logic, and they just hit a wall on uh, on on that. Um, the second thing that we're finding, we, we've spoken to quite a few labs that are trying to do conversational AI and to use knowledge graphs uh, interactively uh, in in the conversation, you know, to, to, to basically get context and to update the knowledge graph and to basically use it interactively in real time. And they found they hit severe um, performance issues. So we developed a knowledge graph technology that's two orders of magnitude faster than any commercially available graph database a uh, hundred times faster. Wow. And that makes makes all the difference that basically, you know, where you could have a, a sub-second response to, to something that somebody says, um, you know, versus having a, you know, 500, uh, you know, 50-second uh, response, you know, a, a minute, mm -hmm. minute response, which clearly is unacceptable. Uh, because we might hit that knowledge graph hundreds of times or thousands of times while we're trying to make sense of, of, of an utterance. So, so those are two reasons that the performance of the knowledge graph and, and not being uh, constrained by formal logic approaches, those are two reasons. But the third one is actually uh, more an accident of history. And, and that is that nobody's working on cognitive architectures. And why is that? Um, well, primarily because deep learning has been so incredibly successful in so many areas. So it's sucked all of the oxygen out of, out of yeah. the air. I remember when I was studying deep learning, uh, uh, it was it was in the deep it was in the deep learning winter, uh, you know. So I got my PhD in 2009, and you actually couldn't uh, publish a paper in deep learning. You couldn't submit a deep learning paper to NIPS; they would reject it. It would be it'd have to be a, it'd have to be truly remarkable to get into NIPS. Wow. And now all of NIPS, yeah, is just neural networks applied to everything. Um, and to your point, I mean, I think that's the goal of an academic. Or you know, in this case, like a, a company that's really forward thinking, is to is to do that thing that nobody else is doing. So I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's I mean we had uh, as a concrete example, we had a brilliant intern from Germany working uh, on our project uh, quite a few years ago, and he really got the cognitive architecture concept and you know he had, uh, you know and, and and understood the the thing. Worked with us for a year. Went back to Germany to do his PhD on that. He couldn't get a sponsor. He ended up doing a PhD in deep learning. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Want to earn the big bucks? You want to get your paper published? You want to, you know, get a PhD? Uh, you want to get funding for your company? Deep learning is the only game in town. You know. So all of the big decision makers at the at the big companies and the VC firms and that they're obviously all deep learning. You know, that's that's the only game in town. So. That's actually, quite frankly, one of the big reasons I believe that cognitive architectures haven't made much uh, more progress. And, you know, I've just been blinkered. I mean, I um, I spent five years doing my own research before I started on this project to really deeply understand what intelligence entails. You know, uh, how does our intelligence differ from animals? How do children learn? What do IQ tests measure? Are they meaningful? Uh, I studied epistemology, you know, theory of knowledge, and even what is reality? What is our relationship of our knowledge and, and certainty to reality and really deeply understanding cognition from, you know, all these different angles from cognitive psychology and, and, and of course, the different uh, fields of AI. And, um, and then, you know, I came to conclusion, okay, we need 
you know, what I now call a cognitive architecture. And it's just been so obvious to me that that's required. There's no shortcut, you know, that it has to learn interactively in real time one shot. That's not negotiable, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And if, if you're working on any system, if you're not solving that problem, uh, you're not going to get an intelligent system. It's as simple as that, you know. So um, sort of a general, generally intelligent system and a few, a few other things. Uh, like that, and that this is why we've, you know, I've been blinkered working on this with, you know, limited budget. Um, um, you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a, a good commercial success with my uh, a software company I formed. Uh, did an IPO uh, on on that, so that gave me enough time and money when I exited that company to actually embark on this project, and I've been been able to fund it, you know, with with about a dozen people. Uh, doing research, and then we've commercialized the first generation, and now for the last uh, six years we've been working on the second generation on IGO AI. And uh, but it's uh, you really have to be certain that this is the path. You know, like some of the pioneers of deep learning, we're sure that 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 they could that deep learning or, or neural you know neural nets of some sort were really, really powerful and useful uh, eventually, and they turned out to be right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been talking a lot about at work for years, and, and we haven't really been able to make progress, is is this idea of you know, if you have an embedding, you're know, recovering like an English explanation of that embedding. So imagine if you have an embedding of all of a person's activity on Amazon, could you write a bio about that person? Right. Like, could you just take that embedding and, and, and output, you know, emit uh, a bio, you know, this is Bob, Bob loves soccer products and Bob buys things in the evening. Right. Um, you know, and again, of course, you could do it with a lot of human engineering. But but, you know, the thought experiment here is 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 could we just organically, you know, go backwards Like you can clearly, you know, there are encoders that can clearly embed English uh, and translate it into French. We've seen that. Um but but could you do more? Could you embed? Could you encode experiences and translate them into English, right? And I think that is uh, um, something that's proving to be extremely difficult. And I think what we're starting to realize is you know, maybe something you've realized for a long time, which is that you know symbolic uh, representations they're not things that can be just emitted from embeddings. And and these are things that have to kind of work together in harmony. Yeah, well, I mean, the example you're giving is actually a very very powerful one. Is uh, could you do it? And I think the way um, statistical systems are set up, I mean, even the fact that they're statistical, immediately negates that possibility because you are trying to average out of a, you know many instances yeah. of what what is the average thing that that happens. So you are you you lose you have to lose the original instance information so therefore you couldn't reconstruct it you could only reconstruct the the average and one of the you know huge failures of uh, or limitations I shouldn't call it failure because they're not trying to do that but limitations is uh, you can't deal with the the outliers you know if my my profile says uh, you know my my personal profile of what I buy or what I do what my activity let's just for argument, say, say it, it has a, a 99% confidence that I, I would be interested in cricket. 
you know, mm -hmm. I lived in South Africa for. Oh, okay. Years. Well, there you go. You know, <laughs> whatever. You know, I drink yeah. tea. You know, I sure. love tea. So whatever. My profile. Let's just for argument's sake. But I don't. I don't care for cricket. Cricket at all. But you know, my profile would suggest that a statistical system can simply not deal with that. You know, right. the, the, uh, I mean, all of them require regularization to perform. I mean, that was one of the big, uh, uh, one of the hallmarks of deep learning was dropout and was exactly. batch norm and, and, and ways to eliminate their outliers. Right. It's their yeah. strengths, but therefore you, uh, you can then never deal with these uh, outliers of people that are, you yeah. know, that don't fit the statistic. And this is also one of the reasons why it can inherently not work in a in a in an ongoing conversation. I mean, apart from the sort of example I gave that you have to learn in real time. But even putting that apart, uh, setting that apart, you know, if you have a lot of sort of the normal kind of conversation, if a statistical system has an 85% accuracy or something, uh, you know, on, on what response to give, well, if you have a conversation and you three or four, five sentences in, into the conversation, you multiply the 85%, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're down to gobbledygook basically you know yep uh, it's not so, designed to recover either as you said it's not designed to ask the pointed questions to yeah let's say hey I'm, I'm, I'm lost here you know uh, you know explain that to me so um yeah some and and there's there's actually kind of one last thing i just like to come back because you've mentioned a few times the relationship between embeddings and uh, and symbolic and uh yeah, so they're the problems of how information is encoded in deep learning systems, that it's not encoded in a conceptual format. But um, it, you need to have it in a conceptual format to be able to then link it to the symbols, because the right. symbol refers to the concept. But the concept itself has to be represented in the, in the right way with the right features, you know, and that's why, um, yeah, it, it will think that, uh, you know, a, a stop sign is a fridge or whatever, you know. Yeah, right. One thing that I saw from, from Google really resonated with me was early on in the embeddings, this was maybe 2011, you know, deep learning was still kind of catching on. And um, um, uh, the person, I can't remember their name, um, Patrick, you would know this, the person who is the, like, uh, MacGyver of Google, Totally drawing a blank. Um, you know, there was a whole Jeff page. Dean. Jeff Dean, thank you. Yeah. So Jeff Dean, uh, you know, came and gave a talk on embeddings, and they actually were trying to draw symbolic inferences from embeddings. So, for example, you could minus king from queen, and you could minus lion from lioness, and you would get the same vector, right? Yeah. And that seems so powerful, but in a way, you know, now in hindsight, you know, we have 10, nine, 10 years of hindsight, that was quite the red herring, wasn't it? Because it, it really suggested that you had the symbols there, you just had to, had to do some algebra to get them. And here we are 10 years later with almost no progress, right? Yeah, I, I'm actually so glad you mentioned that because I, I, I love talking about that exact example that uh, it was seen as a revolution and I, I always called it a parlor trick because yeah. it, it, that's exactly the examples I gave. You know, you could take uh, Paris, subtract France and add England and you'd get London or whatever. Yeah, right. right. But, you know, we when, when this first came out, we actually tried to use, this is word to vector, basically, 
right. word, word to vague. Uh, we actually tried to use it in our system to see, you know, could we kind of, could it help us bootstrap the system? And we very, very quickly uh, found out what that it actually wasn't, uh, not only wasn't it useful, it was actually counterproductive. And I can give you a simple counterexample that in vector space, cats and dogs are much closer together than dog and puppy. Yeah, because, probably because in text, of, uh, in text, yeah. you'll find cats and dogs yeah. uh, mentioned, and not dogs and puppies, uh, usually in the yeah. same sentence. And you know, uh, you you very quickly f find those kind of limitations. So even, uh, yeah, it, it it's as I say, it's it sort of just a politic. That's wow, yeah. You, yeah, you can, it seemed you amazing. But you you hit another point, which yeah, substitution is devastating to embeddings because it. It it uh, if one word can be substituted for another, you'll rarely see them together, and then that drives them apart. But they're actually the same exact concept. Right, right. Yeah, int but interesting times we live in, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, this is super cool. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, what you said really resonated with me, uh, having 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 been a big proponent of 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 uh, of you know multi-layer perceptrons back when they weren't popular, and I do think that this. This, uh, we do need sort of some. We do need a stepwise advance. I think we're starting to hit the limit. I mean, GPT-3 is so many gigabytes, right? Every time I see models get really large, uh, it's a sign that you know we're starting to run out of low-hanging fruit. And so um, I'm really excited to see. Yeah, I'll definitely be doing a bunch of reading on this. Um, and I think you have uh, a bunch of posts on Medium with with some really good content. So what we'll do is we'll put. Uh, We'll put that in the show notes so that folks can uh, can read more about about this area. Right. Yeah. That that that'll that'll be good. And um, welcome any questions, feedback on that. I yeah you know, I have quite a few articles on Medium.com, including uh, risks of AI and uh, ethics and and uh, so on. Cool. So so tell us a little bit about the company. So. Uh, you told us, uh, you know, it was founded. I think you said 20 years ago, or, or... My, my first R&D company uh, was in 2001 that I, I, mm -hmm. I founded. First R&D company. We then uh, launched a commercial, mm -hmm. uh, first generation commercial product in 2008. A company called Smart Action. Smart Action is now about 100 people or so. And, okay. And you know, providing an IVR with a brain. But ah. I found that the commercial pressures of uh, providing a SaaS service, you know, reliably, you know, with security and redundancy and performance and yeah. integration and all of that, mm -hmm. that kind of sucked up all of the, the, the time and energy. And we really didn't spend any more time on cranking up the IQ because that wasn't sort of the bottleneck in the company. Right. So I, I, I exited that company seven years ago and started Iga.ai so that I could concentrate again on uh, Cranking up the IQ, so I hired um, a new uh, a new team, uh, 12 people. Um, have an awesome team now, and we basically for five six years we were just in development mode, not in R and D mode because we'd already done the research, but we need, need we knew what needed to be done to basically make the system more more intelligent, more capable, and then. Um, about a year or so ago, we I got to a point where we said, okay, we're now ready to commercialize the second generation, and that's basically what I go AI. And we just launched late last year officially, um, and we're now fully in commercial mode. We 16 people right now. We actually aggressively hiring right now. So 
we hope to be hundreds of people in not too distant future. Cool. So uh, where's the first, company first, located? Uh, we we're in uh, Los Angeles. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, we're exciting times. So it's uh, the you know while I said earlier the commercial thing sort of pushes you in a different direction from just focusing on artificial general intelligence IQ and so we very working very hard to balance that but um, the commercial activity is also a very very good reality check because you can have all of the theoretical things in the world you could write papers about it or beat benchmarks or do whatever you know um, ultimately the rubber hits the road when you're trying to use it in the real world so the commercial uh, aspect I, I find invaluable but we just need to from what we learned previously is we need to make sure that we have enough resources to to keep our development team going full speed while we while we also you know commercializing and getting that 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 feedback and the money yeah 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 oh yeah totally yeah so do you have two sort of separate branches like a fundamental research branch and uh i guess the, the company is still smaller yeah, but we, as it grows yeah. yeah right right now i mean the people we we have we're all hired for their you know sort of for the development roles but as we've gone commercial they've all been very uh excited to be part of the commercial team but you know yes we'll be separating it more as we move forward but we don't want to silo them at right all. we want yep. to make sure yep. that um you know there's a lot of uh, cross communication uh, for sure yeah yeah one of the biggest follies i've seen in research labs is where the communication only goes one way so the idea is you have this fundamental research team and they're going to write papers and they're going to email the papers over to the applied. You know, Yahoo is like this. So there's Yahoo Research. They would send the paper to Yahoo Labs who would then try to fit it into different products. But then no communication went the other way. And, uh, and so that actually hurt the research team more than anybody because they were just operating kind of in the dark. Yeah, in a vacuum, yeah. So we're in a fortunate position that, you know, I'm, as I said, as much of a businessman as I am a cognitive scientist or AI uh, scientist. So I'm, I'm really super excited about both aspects. And, uh, you know, uh, so being able to guide that from the top, you know, that to make sure they don't get siloed is, uh, will, will be, definitely help us. Yeah, totally. So the uh, so if there's folks right now, you know, in university um, you know, are you hiring? What kind of roles in general are you looking for? Do you have internships? Yeah, so we have had interns uh, in, in the past as well, so potentially. Um, of course, it's a little tricky right now because doing interns without physical presence oh, yeah, right. is, 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 is hard. So we don't know yet uh, how that's going to pan out. But the interesting thing in our company, is, which, which, uh, which is very unusual, um, Seventy percent of our of our staff are what I call AI psychologists. Uh, it's actually a profession I invented, but they're basically either nice. linguists, they either have linguistics training or cognitive psychology training. They're not programmers, and right, this is right. again because in our cognitive architecture, a lot of the work is being done through training IGO, not programming IGO. So, you know, giving it a curriculum, uh, building the ontologies, teaching and, and having tasks. And then one third is basically engineering, you know, where we do the actual coding and integration and, and, and so on. Yeah, that and, makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And, and typically, 
I actually prefer to to um, and this is a generalization. It's not a you know not, not sure as well to is um, I I generally actually prefer people who don't have a lot of AI experience because otherwise they, there's too much to unlearn. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Everything will be framed around. Uh... Yeah, yeah. How do we? What's the loss function? What's the embedding? I mean, you just get asked that every day. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we're really just looking for people that are smart and motivated, and that are particularly excited and working on 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 this kind of project. You know, that don't want to work on some uh, ad optimization algorithm or, or you know what yep. you know or uh, Uber for dog food or whatever. <laughs> yeah, Uber for dog. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the uh, um, so so can you kind of walk through what the job? I mean, actually, what you said is really resonates with me. This, this idea of you know training the AI. So so you know someone who I mean clearly there's different roles. There's DevOps. There's people who are optimizing the database, and so those roles are you know pretty well defined. I think I think most people. Uh, who've been following the show know what that's going to be like, but but tell me more about the the training. I mean, so so this AI uh, AI psychologist you said? Yeah, AI. AI psychologist, yeah. So so what is that person? What is a day like? A typical day like for that person? Yeah. So we there are quite a lot of different sort of special specialities within that, but they all kind of revolve around analyzing different kinds of conversational scenarios. Um, so. I mean, on the commercial side, before we were commercial, we would make up our own scenarios like, you know, my sister's dog, cat Spock mm -hmm. is pregnant and being able to understand that now it's more like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to change the delivery uh, address on my order, you know, that, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, uh, or I'm having trouble with my internet service. Uh, so it's basically uh, being able to pass the, the, the sentences that we get and to be able to um, pass them deeply uh, to handle disambig uh, disambiguation, you know, to handle ambiguities, hopefully automatically through context, basically saying, okay, here's something ambiguous, but do I have the context that can disambiguate that? And then basically, does the system already have the knowledge and the algorithms to do the disambiguation effectively? And that disambiguation could also be done through reasoning. It could be you know, um, you know, send an email to Bob. Um, now you might say, okay, I know two different Bobs. The context may not tell me, but there may be other things that you can reason about, say, well, it can't possibly be that Bob because whatever, he died. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever, right. You know, yeah. uh, so there could be reasoning uh, uh, or, or context or something. So disambiguation, deep understanding. Um, one of my articles is understanding, understanding. There's actually, it's a, it's a very interesting topic just, you know, what understanding uh, entails. So a lot of the work we do is in deep understanding of what the person is saying. But then on the other action side of things is, okay, how do you respond to it? There's natural language generation um, and, you know, or doing certain skills, doing certain tasks, which may entail subtasks. Does the system know how to do those subtasks? Do we need to teach it? Um, you know, does it need to gather more information to do it? So, you know, for example, if you say, um, you know, I want to change the delivery address on my order. Well, then it can do that task, but only if it knows what the new delivery address is. So it automatically, without us having to program it, 
uh, it should know that here there's a piece of information that's missing to do this task. I need to ask, well, what, what would you like to change the address to? So it's basically working through that and making sure that IGO has the right knowledge and then highlighting fundamental cognitive deficiencies, you know, where we say, hey, IGO should already be able to figure that out himself, itself. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, the, the cognitive mechanisms aren't strong enough. And then, you know, we we'll sit down and figure out, OK, how can we make make it smarter so that next time we don't even have to teach it that it can basically already figure it out itself or ask for the information. So that's kind of the iterative uh, process. And yeah, it's super interesting stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, a lot of what you said reminded me of, of you know, active learning, right? Where you're kind of looking for, um, and I guess I'm doing the thing that uh, I shouldn't be doing. I'm going back to loss functions and all of that. But, but it's sort of like you look at, you, you sort of look for things that are on the hyperplane. Or in this case, you look for things where um, the system's entirely ambiguous, and you you try to sort of uh, uh, you try to sort of tease apart those examples explicitly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Wow. That's uh, that's totally wild. Um. So so uh, so the team right now is in is is kind of centralized this office in 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 LA, and uh, um. Is there any plans to grow? So if someone is you know, are all the positions you're hiring for in LA or are um, there are there any remote opportunities? Yeah, right now they are. We we haven't yet figured out how to effectively um, interact and manage uh, remote people, but I'm sure we will. We just mm -hmm. need a bit more management structure and, and so on. So yeah, right now uh, we have everyone everyone in, in, in Los Angeles. Uh, cool. but but that'll that'll change uh, in hopefully in the near future. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. And so, if people have questions or they want to write you about, uh, you know, different, you know, career, I'm sure there's a, a careers page on igo.ai. So people uh, check check that out first. But uh, if they have uh, anything they wanted to chat to you about, how can they reach you? Yeah, medium.com uh, would they can always uh, respond there. But I'm also easy to find on uh, Facebook. I'm on Twitter. You know, Peter Boss. Uh, I think you'll be able to find me quite easily. Cool. Great. Um, thank you so much. This was an absolutely fascinating talk. Um, I definitely have a lot of research to do. And uh, you know, I'm sure the listeners out there have a lot to do. There's there's a lot to unpack. But uh, but you know, we have a really motivated community. And, and so I think that, you know, I think you really kickstarted them into, into the next year. So I appreciate it. Great. Well, this was, this was fun. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.